Rocky, I'm ready to try. The next mile, the brave side to the blind man. It's down to the next child. We will survive in the stocky wilderness. Swimming through the waters of Bob and Lion like a rebel fish. Jogging is specialist, predatory and survivalist. Spitting heaven's fire from his lips. Burn a slave driver. to time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people We'll turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. Though I get it, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your hosts, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to get involved in the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live audio at several locations you can go to time for an awakening.com which is the home page and catch the live stream at that location you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening again that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also we're streaming at the bb2me.com. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening. The stream from Ghana. Or you can download the TuneIn Radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn Radio is a free radio app. In that TuneIn search engine, just type in time for an awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you had a Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an awakening radio program with a live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, you can type in Time for an Awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. It's Time for an Awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook and Time for an Awakening media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening, media interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. And also check out that Time for an Awakening marketplace and our partnership with the BB Toomey. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Uh, various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much more, much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.08 here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening, this rainy Sunday, cold rain, Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening, the December 17th edition of Time for an Awakening. Uh, our guest this evening is the listening audience. We're in open forum this evening. So anything that's on your mind, you can give us a call. We'll talk about it. Well, myself and Brother Richard will throw out some topics 
that we hope that you find interesting. But anything that's on your mind, you can give us a call and, and we can discuss it. And you can do that by joining the program at 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowner's insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked, suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors, or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. 
History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back. Time for an Awakening is 7.13 here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, our open forum program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Ellie. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing fine. I'm, you know, uh, I, you know, Elliot, as I was thinking about my opening, I guess I'm getting prepared to um, acknowledge that we're moving into the period, you know, people say holidays, but I'm thinking about, you know, the principles of Kwanzaa and us as a people and how we're, um, how we're moving in those of us in North America to operate more in our towns and cities and in the nation as a whole as a political economic unit compared to, you know, individual participants within American um, democracy. So with, with that thought in mind, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. <laughs> uh, Richard, uh, uh, <sighs> Well, we're in open forum, so there's a lot of things been going on. You know, I, I'm just thinking about our conversation last week with uh, Thomas Burrell and mm-hmm. some of the things that had, that has happened this week, uh, or in the past, in the most recent weeks. Uh, and the question still comes up: the question for conversation and possible debate among our people about citizenship Mm. and are we considered citizens now I'm not talking about how we look at ourselves because by and large we're not in power in this country Uh, I'm talking about how the people empower or quote-unquote power at this point, view your citizenship. Because if they viewed you as a citizen of this country, 99% of the, the stuff that we're dealing with, we wouldn't, you wouldn't be dealing with them. I don't know whether you agree, Richard, but uh, give me your spin on this before we kind of spin off into a few things and maybe open the phones up for people that just want to uh, or, or throw out some topics. And, and and that's an interesting question because, if I may, the way I you know because of I'm I'm one that um, who wholeheartedly believe that um, Black Americans should operate as a um, a whether you call it a national a national group within North America because of our particular history you know a a a 
you know, that's, that's my core belief. Um, to your question about citizenship and how I as an individual have been operating, um, I'm, I don't see, you know, in citizen, I don't see, um, black people as a political group, um, given full citizenship rights. And, and whether we look at the, whether we look at the legal aspect of our, our, from a historical perspective here, whether we look at our economic, um, positioning within this country or whether we look at our political position. And again, I'm saying as a, as a historical group, I don't see that we have been afforded, um, um, citizenship rights. And so the way I characterize myself and how I operate and, you know, some people have challenges with this. I have citizenship in America, but I don't see myself as an American because to be an American is to, to be incorporated within the American project and to be incorporated within the American project. To me seems that you should have all the rights and relationship to your image and relationship to your political and economic standing as any people. And it just doesn't seem like to me when we look at um, how the uh, entertainment industry in relationship to the images of black people are projected, um, treats black people as ones that have rights um, and economic standing you know, when we look at our position within the American economic system and to be more specific about how much do we own? And when you brought up, um, you know, um, Mr. Um, um, Burrell, even in relationship to one of the main elements of wealth as far as land, you know, um, individually or as a collective, Black people, the amount of land that we own, which was the basis of wealth we don't have. And then when we look at our positioning within the political system, you know, you, it's, it's still always up to question um, with the recent Supreme Court, um, um, it, you know, um, passings that are specifically affect um, this thing called African-Americans more than others. So um, for me, this question about citizenship is, um, you know, not something that, you know, that I could say as a political or historical group that black people have been incorporated as truly being citizens of America. Hopefully I answered your question. Richard, um, and, the, and the reason I mentioned that because I'm quite sure you are aware of uh, some of the conversations and uh, in my place of business, I heard a lot of conversations here, and maybe in the past month or two, in reference to uh, immigrants coming into the United States, and the way some of our people uh, couch this argument is that they're looking at the quote-unquote immigrant and putting the onus, the blame, the responsibility on them as far as maybe coming in and infringing on uh, rights that's supposed to be for black people, taking jobs, whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Um, my my uh, the way I'm looking at it, and I'd like some input from the listening audience, is that I think these arguments are a little misplaced because we're not looking at the totality of the system that we live under and what was created to cause a lot of these people now to come into this country. And then what happens when they get here? That's another story in and of itself. Um, I just want to kind of refer to a couple of articles because uh, you see a lot of cities now that's in the news, uh, New York in particular, the largest city in this country, and Chicago, which is the second or third. I'm not sure how L.A. falls in. I think Chicago is the second largest city. And this stuff is going on in Philadelphia also, but not to the degree of these other cities as of now. I'm quite sure that next week that might change, and you realize that, Richard. Yes, that, yes. That next week, that might change as far as any of these cities, Houston, any of these cities. I, I'm surprised it hasn't been happening to the degree it's happening in Chicago and New York, in Houston. And it might be. Uh, I mean, we got listeners in the Houston area. They can call in and, and weigh in on this topic. But, but you know, isn't it the governor of Texas um, been sending the – uh, you know, the people at the border to places like New York and Chicago? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and, and that, well, that's why I said that, that that might be another topic in itself because maybe the reason why they're not being sent to Houston per se, even though Houston has a black mayor and a large black population, is that it might cost the state uh, some money, so they'll send them to other places. That that might be. I don't know. But uh, let let me let me read a couple of articles in reference to this, Richard, so I can put things into perspective for myself and the way I'm looking at this. Uh, this article was in the Vox, a magazine, uh, just two months ago, in relation to what's going on in New York. And then I'm going to share some things that uh, was in the IllinoisPolicy.org about what's going on in Chicago. So we can kind of start putting this into perspective. Y- you know, for me, when I look at these things, they don't happen in a vacuum. It's good to put some type of perspective to it before, you know, we just fire off and just talk about these issues. Oh, these people in my neighborhood, oh, they're taking a job, they're doing this and that. But, you know, if you put it in perspective, that kind of helps you kind of view things maybe differently, and it might not. But let me let me share some of these things, and then I want you to kind of check this out and uh, follow along with me in the listening audience. This is in the Vox magazine, and I'm just read portions of this, this article and portions of another article. Uh, the header is New York City's not-so-sudden migrant surge explained. It says, why New York City is struggling to house thousands of arriving migrants. Read a couple of paragraphs here. It says, New York City Mayor Eric Adams recently warned that the city could be destroyed if it doesn't get much more support uh, for the influx of migrants. 
and now starting to turn some asylum seekers out of shelters. Uh, This is a quote from Adams. Never in my life have I had a problem that I didn't see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this, the mayor said at a town hall earlier this month. Since April 2022, more than 116,000 migrants have arrived in New York. Most came from the Mexican-U.S. border, fleeing hardship in their countries and seeking asylum, a form of protection that would allow them to remain in the United States and not be deported. Many are not eligible to work in the United States due to asylum rules, which require migrants to wait about six months for work permit. More than 60,000 of them remain in the city's shelter systems, according to a statement from the mayor's office. If migration continues at this current pace, the city is on track to spend $12 billion over the next few years to shelter and support migrants. The crisis has deep roots. The United States migration system has long been broken, amplifying an international human crisis the movement of migrants from the southern border into cities have, uh, has highlighted and tested the system's many fault lines. A report from Adams' administration blames a litany of factors, including the lack of comprehensive federal immigration reform, Trump administration policies uh, dealing with climate change, overwhelming immigration courts, and the narrowing paths migrants face to becoming permanent residents. Now, Richard, before I read a couple of more of these paragraphs, let me go to what he stated. Because I played the clip, and I'll probably do it again for the listening audience that heard it. Maybe you'd like to hear it again. And some of the ones that didn't hear it. When I played Jesse Jackson's son, who just went into Congress and stated, if you remember, why uh, this influx of migrants was coming to Chicago. You remember what he said, Richard? Yep. Yep. Now, if you notice, it says here that Adams' administration released a statement about what is causing this. And if you missed it, I'm going to read it again. Report from Adams' administration blamed uh, these factors, including the lack of comprehensive federal immigration reform, Trump administration policies, climate change, the overwhelming immigration courts, and the narrowing paths immigrants face to becoming permanent residents. You see something a little strange there, Richard? Yeah. All all deal with the federal government system, as I see it. All dealing with the federal government system not doing something that is causing the the immigration policy. Well, wait a minute. And and not doing something, quote-unquote, once the people get here. Not mm-hmm. what's causing this. Right. Because he released a statement saying what he believes is causing, a litany of factors, his administration, a litany of factors, what is causing this. See, right. you know, that, that's why I'm saying, um, it's good to hear what these people are saying, and I'm talking about all of us in general. So we know what what the hell. I mean, what am, am I in an alternate universe? Those four things that he state here has nothing to do with why those people are coming here. Right, 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 right. But this is the statement that his office released. 
Now, let me go a little bit further. It says, as of September 2023, the U.S. has taken in about 445,000 Venezuelans, while Latin America and the Caribbean countries has taken in more than 6 million. Migrants are also coming to the United States from Latin America, uh, from the Caribbeans, from the Caribbean also, Cuba, Haiti, and Guatemala, and Nicaragua, and some African countries. Haiti is extremely unstable right now, and that is rooted mainly in human rights violations and foreign policy that continues to play a part in the destabilization of the country. Haiti wants to thrive in their Haitians want to thrive in their country, but they've been forced to flee, says Gerline Yosef, the founder, the co-founder and executive director of Haiti Bridge Alliance. Now, it seems like what this brother is saying is uh, has a little more reality than the four or the five excuses or the five reasons that Adams administration released. And you heard, and and you heard to destabilization. Yes. Okay. When he said Haitians would love to thrive in their own country, but have been forced to flee. Now no. that's not what the dumbass uh, uh, Adams administration admitted or uh, 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 released those stupid excuses that he just released. Now let me go just a little bit further before I switch over to Chicago because we see all these people piling out they showed all on the world news tonight you see them sleeping outside Penn Station and all these places in New York right? right and according to this published report it says that since September 20 since April 2022 more than 116,000 migrants has came to New York City and most of them was from Central America and from the Haitian, uh, uh, from the islands, Caribbean. Now, let's look at this picture here, Richard, in this same published report. It says refugees from Europe, such as those fleeing the war in Ukraine, has also made their way to the United States, mostly in New York, through the Department of Homeland Security Sponsors Program, such as programs such as Uniting for Ukraine. More than 280,000 Ukrainians have arrived in the United States through this program since it was launched in April of 2022. Immigration advocates have noted that New York City was able to integrate thousands of Ukrainians, but has developed a different tone around migrants coming from the southern border. Our leadership is buying into the narrative that we can't control Immigration, but the wealthiest country on earth can't handle immigrants, says Vanessa Cardenas, the executive director of America's Voice, an organization that advocates for undocumented migrants to be put on a path towards citizenship. They're saying this is an impossible task, but New York processed over 100,000 Ukrainians in a matter of weeks. Our government has learned, uh, leaned, uh, has leaned in on this issue. So, so wait a minute, Richard. According to the published report, that since April of 2022, more than 280,000 Ukrainians and other Europeans have arrived in New York City. But it's a different program, according to what it states here. 
just published a report. It says that uh, immigration advocates have noted that the New York City, uh, excuse me, hold it, no, I didn't misplace my, uh, okay, here it is, has also made their way to the United States, mainly through New York, through the Department of Homeland Security sponsors programs, such as Uniting for Ukraine. So they have several programs that Homeland Security has put in place for European immigrants where it can fast track them to money to jobs so they don't have to sleep in Penn Station sleep in shelters in black neighborhoods sleep in rec centers in black neighborhoods and take black people's jobs or they're getting jobs jobs that you wouldn't be getting anyway for discrimination they're getting these jobs they're getting houses in fact they probably live in houses better than black people that's been in those areas that grew up in New York all their life they're not sleeping in those stations, Richard, on the tracks, on the streets. What, 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 what is this? Why aren't black people screaming about these whites that has come in here? Why are they screaming about these other people? Because mm. what, it was, what was done in their country by this United States. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that, Richard, because they're not the only, according to this thing here, it stated that 116,000 since April 2022 immigrants from... The southern border has arrived in New York, but almost at the same time, 280,000 Ukrainians and other Europeans arrived in New York, but were fast tracked. You you follow what I'm saying, Richard? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And and but is is the the context of how European immigration has worked is not anything new. I don't know if you you would disagree with me in relationship to the context of how people from, I mean, I'm calling from the Southern Hemisphere, Haiti, Venezuela, how they have been viewed. And in the turn of the 20th century, they were, you know, even when America was outposting into um, the Philippines and and other islands, one concern they had is that they didn't want to make those places states because they didn't want to have to increase the based off of their racial identity. They didn't want to increase the black population of being citizens of the United States. So if I, if I'm listening to what you're saying, it falls in line to Americans policy in relationship to image of how they treat European immigrants. Um, in a positive light and how they treat, say, let's use the Haitian immigrants just recently. They, I, if I'm not mistaken, I have an image. They was moving them on horses to get them to, was that not, what, six months ago? Yeah. Ago? Yeah, they was using horses and other things to round them up, almost like they was at a rodeo. Right. But what, what so, I'm saying is, you know, our people have been discussing this issue of immigration, but... These things should have been discussed. I mean, should should always been discussed. Europeans have been coming in here, getting services, getting money, uh, uh, getting jobs. They didn't just start coming here. Why is it that you're screaming about these other people that's been forced to leave their countries because of destabilization by the United States? And and that's the that's the linchpin that has to be. Um, that's the nail that has to be continuously hammered 
that it's United States foreign policy that is causing the immigration challenge that in locations like New York or Chicago or Philadelphia or Florida that is creating the condition for people to move. Because you just read, people say in Haiti, they say they don't really want to move. Don't nobody want to leave their home. But when someplace else, somebody else is creating a condition, what do we expect? And then they support it. One group more than others. Support it with financial resources so they can be able to make that move. And have a smooth transition into another country. And and fast track all of these uh, stipulations about not being able to apply for jobs. All that stuff is fast track through these government organizations. And the point you raise is whether we who are the, what they call it, the majority minority population of the longest history, why should we be our numbers, our social indicators, which which needs resources, be deprived, and we see other groups, and again, this ain't nothing new. From the inception of this country, you can see other um, immigrant groups come into this country and take this fast track over what is now identified as African American. If we were citizens, even in a bad economy, would we be that worse off than the immigrants that are being brought in from the destabilization of American foreign policy? Now, keep in mind, Richard, that uh, because I, I, I want to, um, before I read this other article, I want to play with Jackson's son said. Now, keep in mind, he's a freshman congressman, if I'm not mistaken. So he doesn't know the rules of that CBC and how they keep their people in the dark of a lot of things. I'm just I'm saying that with tongue planted in my cheek, Richard, because of him holding that town hall. Number one, these elected officials don't never hold no town hall meetings with their constituents and tell them anything. But he held a town hall meeting. I want to play what he said again in reference to this migrant crisis that's happening in black community, directly affecting black communities in Chicago and directly affecting black communities in New York City. Uh, uh, Maurice Carver, Brother Maurice Carver, Black Men Screaming, sent me several things in reference to what's going on there in New York and and, and directly affecting the black community. But um, again, I just want to read the statement from Adam's office in reference to the problem and what is causing it. Uh, According to this Vox published report, it says the Adams administration blames a litany of factors uh, to why this crisis is happening. The lack of comprehensive immigration reform, Trump administration policies, climate change, Overwhelming immigration courts, overwhelmed immigration courts, and the narrowing path immigrants face to becoming permanent residents. Those were the one, two, three, four, five reasons of why those people are coming here, which doesn't make much sense. Now, let me play again for the listening audience before I read this article. What Jackson's son said, Joshua Jackson's son said at a town hall meeting, about two weeks, maybe three weeks ago. 
I'll just go through this very uh, quickly. Um, the challenges that we have. Hold on. Easy, easy, easy. So, so here we go. So here we go. What's happening in Chicago right now in the migrant crisis? We're looking at warehouses being used, police stations, schools, libraries, all of these different places. I want to give you a little bit of a background on how do we get to this point and where the federal government is and what's happening in Chicago. So this will be a deep dive. I'm not a flyby, and I can sit here and talk with you all night long. So this is what you got me here for, so I'm available. I'm not running. Okay. Where are the migrants coming from in this wave? The migrants in large part are coming from Venezuela. What's happened in Venezuela? The United States, after President Hugo Chavez came to power almost 15 years ago, he has since uh, has died. Um, he was a socialist and was doing a lot of economic reforms. There was a backlash against his government by the United States. So we started uh, doing a embargo, blocking his oil sales. Then from there, we started the sanctions under the Trump administration. So what's happened in the last 15 years in Venezuela is they've had the equivalent of three Great Depressions. So this is one of the wealthiest countries on earth if they could sell their oil. But they've had the equivalent of three Great Depressions. So now over 7 million people have had to leave their country. Many of the people that you're seeing in these shelters and police stations over had a house, had an apartment, had a place to stay. But because we've taken them out of the foreign exchange process, the United States government, you cannot use a U.S. credit card in Venezuela. They cannot sell their oil to the United States. They have suffered three Great Depressions. And because we're the only country in the region and in the world that has a problem with Venezuela, they want to leave. And in turn, the bordering countries end up welcoming them and transporting them to the next city, to the next city, all the way to the Mexican border. So from Caracas, Venezuela, to Chicago, Illinois, is 2,499 miles. You can walk to Caracas, Venezuela. You can drive to Caracas, Venezuela. You can bicycle to Caracas, Venezuela. You don't need to fly. You don't need to take a boat. It's one contiguous landmass is what I want people to understand. And then we're going to go into a deeper dive on how did we get to this current challenge. The migrant crisis timeline starts when Hugo Chavez is elected. There's uh, repercussions. The United States wasn't happy. Um, Mr. Chavez has since uh, deceased. And then uh, Maduro came in there, and the United States got even more uh, selective in its prosecution and sanctions against them. Then he had a failed coup attempt in 2018. Then the United States puts in sanctions on the oil. They also own the Citco Oil Company. The Venezuelan oil company has hyperinflation. We're talking about the 4 and 5% that we have on eggs and milk. They started having 75 and 100 and 200% inflation. So people could no longer eat there. And now the imports resume, eventually increasing to 153,000 barrels of crude oil a day. They had been totally shut down. Why do we have to deal with this? Because there are over 400,000 people from Colombia and up the Pan-American Highway that are trying to get here. 
So this is only the beginning of the wave. We're going to talk about it a little bit more. In Venezuela, highly dependent on fossil fuel. The sanctions have uh, contributed to their economic hardship, and their inflation rate has been hovering at around 300%. That is why people have had to leave the country to come here. Now, Richard, that sounds a whole lot different right. than the silly excuses that Adams gave to why the same people are in New York City. Right. I didn't right. hear him mention Trump, uh, 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 immigrate, uh, 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 not immigration, uh, climate, climate change, change <laughs> uh, the immigration courts is flooded. I didn't hear those silly excuses that came out of Adam's mouth or from the mouth of his administration, which is the, the statement was put out by Adam's office. That was more of a realistic explanation to, to why the people are coming here. Now, why they ended up in Chicago in black communities, taking up rec centers, schools, and other things is another story altogether. Right. <clears throat> right. Um, and, and, go ahead. Go ahead. The, the other point that you raised in this, as you brought this up, is that the citizens in, you know, the voices of, of black people who, who live in these communities, or at least the outspoken, who are, are, are crying that, and I don't want to call it crying, um, and, you know, presenting as if one, on one side, the immigrants are coming because they want to come to a place where they can have a better life. And where they're coming is the black community. And then on the other side, that the government, the local government and the federal government is supporting them coming compared to that, to that it's the American foreign policy that is creating the destabilization within those countries that are producing, using what Jesse said, you know, that is producing those individuals where they can't even live in their country. That I think that, that if black people were presenting it from that perspective, then the immigration discussion wouldn't be about from black people, black political, you know, and, and our, amongst us, it would be at the, the foreign policy of American foreign policy. Or why are you creating these conditions that are harming um, those people in their country and not creating the condition to be able to take the people who are here, black people particularly, off the streets, provide them with appropriate education so that they could be able to get the appropriate jobs are the people who've been here. Seems to me that should be the framing, but it's, it's not unless I misunderstand it. Yeah, well, I listen, he said it clearly that uh, uh, it's impossible that people have faced three great depressions in their places. And the money, I mean, they can't use certain monies. Uh, they can't afford to feed their families, so they're forced to leave. Mm-hmm. Richard, it's kind of ironic that among black communities, we've suffered more than three great depressions. Right. And some of our people, the thing about leaving 
or doing something different don't come up in conversations as far as among black leadership. I'm not talking about rank and file black people. They discuss everything. Everything's on the table when you go around to some of these meetings, meet with people, uh, meet with people in the community, things like that. But I'm talking about your elected leadership. Nothing comes across the table as far as them doing anything any different. And if you're talking about Great Depressions, our people have suffered more than three Great Depressions in these black communities. Let me just share, because this this comes from an article in the Illinois Policy, and this deals with the, the, the crisis that's going on in Chicago right now. This was from November of this month, or, well, excuse me, November of this year, last month. The header was black and brown Chicago neighborhoods endure the highest poverty rates. Majority black neighborhoods in Chicago's south and west side face poverty rates up to 51%, Richard. Mm. Neighborhoods where members of of black minorities are in the majority are concentrated in the south side and west side. Residents face poverty nearly three times the citywide average. If you live in Riverdale on the city's far south side, your chances of being below the poverty line is over 51%. That's the highest rate of any Chicago's 77 community areas. In Fuller Park, it's 48.8%. Uh, it's also high in Washington Park, 49 or 46.9%. East Garfield Park, 45.5%. Inglewood, 40%. The neighborhoods are occupied almost entirely by black residents. The new analysis of data from the U.S. Census Bureau further details the neighborhoods where Chicagoans are more likely to be living below the poverty line. Extreme high poverty rates and dense uh, minority neighborhoods is the large reason for the citywide numbers. Black Chicagoans face the black Chicagoans on average face a poverty rate of 28.7%. That's nearly triple what white Chicagoans experience at 10.3%. The Asian population poverty rate is 18%. And the Hispanic poverty rate is 14%. But your poverty rate in Chicago, our brothers and sisters, the citywide average is 28%, Richard. But in these neighborhoods, I just read the figures, well over 50% in the high 40s. If that ain't a depression, I don't know what is. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know what is, Richard. So when you hear the people screaming about what's going on in their communities, uh, immigrants from other countries that have been forced out of their countries being devastated by United States or Western policies and then funneled into your communities and then the people are screaming and looking at their leadership and they don't have any answers for them. This is the dilemma. Mm. Now you got new people that have went into these seats. Oh, uh, Jesse Jackson's son, uh, Joshua Jackson, 
if I'm not mistaken, if somebody from Chicago, if we got listeners, they can call me and clear it up because Bobby Rush uh, left that seat, if I'm not mistaken. Well, not if I'm not mistaken. He did step out of that seat in January of last year. He retired and said he wanted to be a minister. He wanted to be a pastor. <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean, you know, that's funny in itself. But uh, he left that seat. But I want to give a little timeline. See, because this stuff don't just happen. When I said that our people were suffering great depressions in these black communities, and more than three of them, he gave a, a, a estimate on what's going on in some of these countries that they have faced over three great depressions. But if you look at our communities, Richard, as a whole, and you're talking about over 50% poverty rate, I mean, if that ain't a depression and lead to other things, I don't know what does and lead to violence and other things in these communities. Now, that doesn't just happen, what's going on in Chicago. They've had leadership, and black leadership in these communities. Now, I'm going to bring up Rush, and not to focus in on Rush, because he's just a symptom of the problem. But I'm using him as an example. Now, Rush was congressman in those areas, for over 30 years, if I'm not mistaken, Richard, you can clear me up if I'm wrong. Right. Let me read a timeline of him, and I want to play a clip. It was an old clip that we played on Time for Awakening, and I'm going to play it again just to refresh our people's memory of something that he said out of his mouth. But let me, I'm going to give a little timeline here of Rush. And this comes from printed reports. Um, and I didn't realize this, Richard, that after um, Harold Washington died, that black Chicagoans had formed a black party. Did you know that, Richard? Um, no, no. The, the Harold Washington party. Look, I'm going to read some of this timeline here of Rush. It says, Bobby Rush's allies in the black power movement abandoned the Democrats in the wake of the political turmoil that followed the sudden death in 1987 of Chicago's Mayor Harold Washington and formed their own political party, naming it the Washington Party. Mm. Uh, how, uh, leaders, uh, uh, Bobby Rush, infuriated Harold Washington Party leaders by spurring their candidates for local offices and sometimes backing white Democrats instead. He worked with Democrats, white Democrats, and was rewarded with the deputy chairmanship of the state party. After redistricting in 1992, Rush ran in Illinois' newly redrawn 1st Congressional District, which included much, much of Chicago's South Side. Those numbers that I read a minute ago. Let me get, get back to the article. The district had a high proportion of African-American residents. In 2000, Democratic primary for the district, Rush was challenged by Illinois State Senator Barack Obama. During the primary, Rush said Barack Obama went to Harvard and became an educated fool. (laughs) Barack is a person, this is a quote from uh, Rush, Barack is a person who read about the civil rights protests and thinks he knows all about it. Rush claimed Obama was insufficient, insufficiently rooted in Chicago's black neighborhoods to represent constituents' concerns. 
Obama said Rush was a part of politics that was rooted in the past and said he could build bridges with whites to get things done. But while Obama did well in his own Hyde Park base, he did not get enough support from surrounding black neighborhoods, losing to Rush uh, by more than two to one, despite winning among white voters. Now, let's put a pendant right there. Because the rest of the things I'm going to state from 2015 on about what he did. Now, look at the, the games that, that, that being played on our people, and sometimes our people play out of position. Now, he was screaming about Obama not knowing about the civil rights movement, not having any background among black people in those communities. And the communities didn't vote for Obama at the time. And he said that he, you know, was rooted in the problems of the community. You remember what I just read, Richard? Right. Now, it's clear that if he was rooted in the problems and was aware of them, he didn't do anything about them. Because these figures that I read a minute ago about poverty being off the hook, that ain't something that just happens. This is decades upon decades, maybe of 100 years of divestment and underdevelopment of these communities. Now, this is yep. what he stated in 2014 in an interview with Tamarin Hall. We played it on the program. I just want to play it again to refresh the listening audience memory about him. And keep in mind, this is not dumping on Rush. Rush is a symptom of a larger problem of black leadership. Remember, just to refresh your memory, remember what he said to Tamron Hall, and here it is. Tamron, it's my pleasure. It always is great to talk to you. Let's put some perspective on what was happening. You were there 22 years ago. Do you believe the way the crime bill is being described now versus what was happening on the ground in some of that video, is it matching here? Chairman, let me start out with this. I am ashamed of my vote. I sincerely apologize to my God, apologize to my community, to my family. That was the worst vote as I look back over the years that I've taken since I've been in in the Congress. And what happened with the crime bill and its implementation was that there was too much of a focus, too many resources on locking them up, but no resources on love and compassion. And as a result, we have devastated our communities, Devastated our families, devastated our futures. And you can compare what happened with the crime bill and with the reaction. Well, let me just say this. Crack cocaine and the crime bill were the two worst issues, problems, catastrophes that the black community has suffered through in the last 50 years. 
We absolutely apologize for voting for that bill. I repudiate not the spirit, but the details of that bill. We have not accomplished anything other than further destruction of our communities. So, Congressman, uh, I then have to ask you, as, as you have mothers and fathers, I covered crime and reported in Chicago for 10 years, having the former president, have your, have, hearing what you say now with this apology, is it enough, though? We were looking at a law that allowed for the prosecution of children 13 or older for certain crimes to prosecute them as an adult. There is no one who would doubt the sincerity of the apology you just presented. But on the campaign trail... You seem to hear the Clintons having it both ways, apologizing for the crime bill, but then pointing to some of the good, if that is even the word to use, that may have come out of it. Is that well, enough for the black I, community to no, hear an apology, no, sir? No, no, no. And, and Richard. <clears throat> It's hard. It's hard. Uh, it's hard listening to 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 that um, for me, Elliot. You know, they they do us. They they do these things, and then they come back. Now, the thousands of families that are affected by it, the millions, right? millions. Go ahead. And then they come back in a pol- years, not you know, like a couple of sessions, but years later. And apologize for because it's, it's not just the individuals that are affected. They create a culture. They go to prison. They, you know, they, they 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 as you say, they get involved in other activities, underground activities. You know, they become they they become not able to even be productive as as this the society say be productive because of the legislation, and then they come back. These guys come back because they're getting a pension and they got someplace else to go. And then they apologize for for what they did. The damage that was done. Yeah. I apologize to my God, to my family, to my community for what I did. I'm sorry. I mean, are you kidding me? And that's the ones who will do that because most of them will stay silent. Yeah, but, but that's why I said I'm not... I'm, the focus is not on him. It's on the bigger picture of what's going on among this black leadership. He wasn't the only one that voted and passed that bill. It was others that was dead, and some of them are still there. Right. And you got the ones that have taken over for the ones that are not there that will do the same thing. Or that have done the same thing. Look at this stuff they just did a couple, about a couple of weeks ago when they passed that thing about uh, anti uh, Talking about anti-Zionism is just like saying anti-Semitism speech. And your black elected officials voted for that, by and large. A few of them didn't. But you're going to come back years later, decades later, and say that the two things, Richard, he said over the past 30 years, that crime bill and crack cocaine was the two biggest things that devastated black people. And it's ironic, and it's not ironic that both of those things was implemented by this federal government. European society, a smoking gun, 
pointed right at the head of the black community. And they knew exactly what they were doing. Now, he claimed that he didn't realize the damage it was going to cause. You heard him say that, Richard. Right. But believe me, the people that fashioned these bills, the Joe Bidens, the Clintons, and the others, they knew exactly what was going to happen because they was implementing these things. They just used those black elected officials to push it among their communities and get them to to support it. And and the justification of why those theories and, you know, because... You know, those are the elected officials. But, you, you know, remember that the the ideal, the policy ideal comes out of the university who who said that this is what has to be that these, you know, that whole thing of black males being, you know, these predators. This comes that this is uh, comes out of, you know, theories of academics that are informing the po- these politicians that are creating these policies that um, are affecting the black community to go to or reinforce my point to question, you know, because this, when we look over at the long history, black men, black communities have always been criminalized since the importation into this country. The first laws in the 17, 1700s were about what? Criminalizing. The laws of even um, trying to be able to free oneself was you were breaking the law. This is a tradition that goes to the point of the Dred Scott decision of the question of are you a citizen? Were you considered a citizen in the making of the declaration of this country. <laughs> uh, before we take a break, I, I, let me finish up because Richard, he, he made those statements to the, uh, the reporter in 2017, I think. And he's done some things since then. You would think after he apologized, almost a tearful apology if you've seen the video, that he would maybe do things differently on his way out of office. But let me just read a little thumbnail sketch of what he did. In 2015, he supported Rahm Emanuel for mayor. In 2019, for Chicago mayor. In 2019, he endorsed Tony Preckwinkle. And that name sounded familiar. And before we break, I'm going to play again why it was familiar, Richard. Tony Preckwinkle in a runoff election. Rush was a Democratic primary uh, in the presidential Democratic primary, endorsed Michael Bloomberg and became his campaign co-chair, national co-chair. But then after he dropped out of the race, uh, Rush endorsed Joe Biden. Rush endorsed incumbent Lori Lightfoot in 2023 mayoral election. And if you remember... Uh, that was the uh, woman that was the mayor over in Chicago, the one that was against reparations and a few other things, and the community got upset after they had kind of voted for her, and they seen what she turned into. They wanted her out. You remember that, Richard? Right, right. It says Russian endorsed incumbent Lori Lightfoot in the 2023 mayoral election, but after Lightfoot failed to advance in the runoff, Rush endorsed Paul Vallis, a former Republican-backed Chicago uh, a former Republican 
that was backed by Chicago's Fraternal Order of Police. Vallis lost to progressive Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson. So we see here that he continued whatever traitorous activities he seemed to apologize for. He didn't seem to stop him. He continued on those same paths going against the community's interests. Now, it's ironic now that the same guy that Brandon Johnson, he's being targeted now because of this stuff going on with immigrants. Where the people are, you know, questioning, you know, hey, brother, what happened to you? That type of conversation. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. But we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, uh, we'll go to the phones and then uh, get some callers involved. But before, before we break, Richard, I was kind of jogging my mind where I heard that name Tony Pragerwin, because I don't know too much about Chicago's politicians necessarily, where I heard that name from Tony Pragerwinkle, that uh, Russian endorse for mayor in 2019. Uh, but uh, <laughs> here it is, which I'll play this clip, and then we'll take a brief break. This was the, the one of the men that was at the Chicago meeting uh, with Joshua Jackson and his comments to what was going on there in Chicago and his feelings on it. And from the response you're hearing, he was speaking of the feelings of the black community. Anyway, what the sister said, I don't give a damn about no Joe Biden. So if that lady want to pass out something about that, that's her free will. Y'all can't be forcing democracy on people. She got the right, just like you got the right to say vote for Joe Biden. I got the right as somebody who represents formerly incarcerated person to say Joe Biden and Clinton 94 crime bill created that. And we haven't recovered from that. The only asylum seekers that's perpetually discriminated against in this country by everybody is formerly incarcerated people. They have 18,000 homeless ex-cons, yet they're around here talking about public safety. You don't even know what these men are. Then you let more ex-convicts in here in the name of migrants. But they want to tell you that it's the low, this on the state, it's on, it's on, uh, the, 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 I mean, the Republicans. All politics are local. Every in this state, don't let them fool you from the top, from, from the lieutenant governor to Tony Pragwinkle to the mayor to the police chief to the state's attorney, to, to to the aldermen, to the congressperson, to the state reps, all are black. You got 150 elected black positions, and our communities look the way they look. And if I say something, if I say something, if it's not with my brother, he just got there. They want to legislate for us without ever bringing us at the table. I did 21 years in the prison. What they going to tell me about what we need? They ain't never spent one day in the cell. But they legislate for your nephew, cousin, and son. The furthermore, ain't no kids in here. Ain't no teenagers in here. Over 150 murdered young men from ages 16 to 24. And ain't no kids in here. That's the problem. You old people, y'all keep voting the same way, hook, line, and sinker, without ever holding them account. And the very babies go kill y'all ass. These kids are little wolves. Hey, ain't nothing else nobody saying no more important than this. Hey, hey, wrap your ass. Ain't nothing nobody saying more important than this. 
I'm tired of y'all playing games with these babies. These babies gonna start driving y'all, but they already doing it. They gonna kill you. I think y'all getting carjacked now. 60% unemployment rate for 18 to 24, and you got money for migrants. Hey, 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 y'all, I'm telling y'all, stop letting these people run fast. It's a game being played, bro. Ain't no way. And how we got guns, no, no. how we got extended clips, 100-round drums, Glock 6, cocaine, heroin, and the weed, 99% of all dispensaries are owned by white men. Y'all got to be out y'all damn mind. We should be marching in Washington. We should be crushing them. They shouldn't even be allowed in our neighborhood. That's what's been to happen. <laughs> Richard? He characterized He summed it up, didn't he? We're going to take a brief break when we come back. <laughs> you can get involved in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. I transformed a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one of the tangible transformations I've created for entrepreneurs in various industries around the country. If this isn't what you think of when you think of accounting and business consulting, then get ready to take down this invaluable information. Are you an entrepreneur suffering with a stagnating company? Have headache customers, staff, or vendors? Are you rebounding from a loss and need help achieving your unrealized potential? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? Hi, my name is Nataki Kanban. If you're ready to go beyond advising and coaching and get results, then call 301-244-9072. 
Let New Business Solutions recommend and implement the best comprehensive sales, administrative, human resources, accounting, and operations to help you grow into your vision for yourself and your company. Again, from anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072 or pull us up on your device right now and book your free consultation at www.newbusinesssolutions.com. Just mention you heard this special announcement on Time for an Awakening. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. For 12 years, I and others like me had held out radiant promises of progress. I had preached to them about my dream. I had lectured to them about the not-too-distant day when they would have freedom all here now. I had urged them to have faith in America and in white society. Their hopes had soared. They were now booing me because they felt that we were unable to deliver on our promises. They were booing because we had urged them to have faith in people who had too often proved to be unfaithful. They were now hostile because they were watching the dream that they had so readily accepted turn into a frustrating nightmare. And so the collision course is set. The desegregation decisions and other type of legislation and Supreme Court decisions depends upon changing the white man's mind. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches uh, us that our own mind has to be changed. We have to change our uh, mind about ourselves. In what way? Well, so he teaches us the importance of moral reformation, uh, a knowledge of self. And, uh, for instance, the average so-called Negro, he doesn't think that he can uh, go into business and provide jobs for himself. And because of this, he thinks that he can only get a job from the white man, or he can only get clothes from the white man, or he can only get food from the white man. And we who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad are taught that uh, the same thing that the white man has done for himself and his kind, uh, if our people could uh, be wrecked, uh, if, if we could be cured of our slave mentality that was uh, indoctrinated into us during slavery, we would realize that just as the white man can do these things for himself and his kind, we can get together in unity and harmony and do the same thing for ourselves and our kind. not wondering at all about them. What I'm concerned with the suffering and the pain of the masses of black people. No one wants to pay reparations. The Jews received over a hundred billion dollars in reparations and gets four billion annually. A Holocaust museum was set up for them on this soil for over two hundred million dollars and they get two twenty-one million annually just for operating expenses. But the Catholic Church, the Pope, the Jews, the Arabs, white people in general, no one wants to pay reparations to these, the sons and daughters of Africa. So I speak to them. I don't speak. I speak to them. I don't speak to the family of those two Jews. There are too, too many of us for me to speak to them.
And one of the reasons why I'm always happy to come to this organization, because you're the only one, you're the only black organization, again, that understands to put race first. Race first. Race first. And I've had some white folks to tell me that I was a flaming militant, a radical, or whatever all of these names were that they called me. And I said that I am very pleased that you've called me a nationalist because you could have said that I was a member of the NAACP of the Urban League. So I said, I'm very pleased of the names that you have given. But I said that because we put race first, something is wrong with us. But everybody else puts their own first because God blessed the child who has his own. And so I think that race first is very important. And though we meet in a different venue, we're not at the slave theater, we're not at the church, we're now at the Masonic Temple, it really does not matter where we are physically. It matters where we are in our minds. And wherever we meet, as long as we know that we're Africans and as long as we know that we're black people living here in America, we know exactly who we are. You notice you can put an Uncle Tom in any venue in the White House. You can even put him in his. He'll still be a Tom. You can put him anywhere you want. Well, it's the same thing with us who are strong people. Wherever we are, we're going to be the people that we need to be. encourage let me just say this before our time winds up and that is I want the people in the audience to go back and look at the video clip from Roots it's entitled something like breaking Kunta Kinte that scene opens with Lauren Green uh, sitting in, who's the plantation master, sitting in his office, and then Fiddler comes in and says, um, uh, we don't want to be too hard on the runaway. Kunta Kinte has just run away and been caught. And um, so the time comes for him to get his lashing. And if you look at this scene, it's about nine minutes, and study the scene, study the role of everybody or bodies that are in this particular clip, and you will find that there is an equivalent role in the political life of our country today, whether it's on the national level or on the local level. There's the black man who actually does the whipping of Kunta Kinte. There's the white man who does the whipping. There's the black man who intervenes with the boss man and tries to save the life of Kunta Kinte. There's Kunta himself, who eventually is forced to admit that his name is Toby. And there's a, there's dozens of bystanders, black, who are watching. 
This, this is a very powerful thing. And it's an analogy of exactly what is happening in our community today. Let's give those characters names in our community and call them what they are and then take care of business about that. Time for an awakening. It's eight twenty-four here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Uh, hold on a second. And, and we're in open forum tonight. Anything that's on your mind, you can give us a call. We'll talk about it. You can do that by reaching the program at two one five four nine zero nine eight three two. That's two one five four nine zero ninety eight thirty two. Um, before we go, because we got some callers that's been waiting. Before we go to the phones, Richard. Um, I, I sent you a uh, clip um, that Byron Allen, the uh, statement that he made in a speech he was given at uh, it was some type of black awards program. I think it was Degree O, Richard. Did you, you you saw that? Right, right. And I want to play a portion of what he said to the listening audience and. See, did, did, you know, Richard, listen. Um, Byron Allen is a businessman. It's a black businessman. But I'm talking about him using that bully pulpit, which is the microphone, to make statements that masses of people will hear. Um, that's my issue with black entertainers, some of them. Uh, black sports figures, black politicians. They have a microphone. And if they're not educated on the issues that affect their communities, they should become educated because they got an opportunity to, to say things that the masses of people will hear. And some of them might be spurred into action from hearing them say it. You know what I mean, Richard? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... I give him credit for what he stated here because, and you know, the, the, I, I watched the video and the camera went around to the different people and you've seen all the people that, that I'm talking about sitting in the audience. Rapping and clapping. Yeah, they, they, they clapping and looking and, and, and acting like they were enthused. But some of them have no interest in pursuing anything that he stated. I mean, all of them, you, you've seen sports figures, You've seen entertainers. You see, you see when you see him when the camera went around. Mm-hmm. I, I want to play what he stated and read a couple of, of uh, quotations from some published reports in reference to what he said. So you know you can put a little context to what he's saying. Uh, some of us, especially this is this program, knows that what he's saying is absolutely true. But for some people that might not be aware of all of the things. I'm going to read a couple of uh, uh, quotations from published reports that kind of uh, bolster uh, what he is stating. But let me share with you what he stated, a portion of what he stated at that uh, venue. 
Byron Al. And as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. taught us, we cannot survive with two Americas. We must achieve one America. We cannot have one America until we deal with the truth. So here is the truth. America, you are killing black America in the classroom by making sure we do not get a proper education. You're killing us in the courtroom by making sure we do not have equal justice. You're killing us in the boardroom by making sure that we do not get real economic inclusion. And you're killing us in the hospital room by making sure that we do not have proper health care. And you're doing all of this long before you kill us in the streets. More truth. If we do not close the education gap, we cannot close the wealth gap. I can tell you where black America will be 40 years from now with one simple data point. What is the black student population of the top 50 universities white corporate America recruits from? If it remains under 1% or 2%, as opposed to where it should be, proportionate with the black population, approximately 14%, then nothing will change in black America. There isn't a bank in the world where I can deposit excuses, so I don't accept them. America, we can no longer accept your excuses. So I'm asking America to understand, appreciate, and accept the truth. Richard, yeah, I Ellie. I have to say this, you know, the Malcolm quote comes to my mind and other things when he said America has to accept this truth. Who is this America? That, that's what that, I was getting to. You beat me. You beat me to the punch, Richard. That, that's 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 what I was getting ready to say. See, some of our people come to the door, but they don't go in. They, it's still that, that little bit of fear there, Richard, to point the finger of blame at who it needs to be pointed at. That way, if a person wants to, you know, he's saying, America, accept the truth. That way, if that person wants to deal with the truth, they can acknowledge it and then deal with it. If I knew, Richard, that the... You came to visit me, and all of a sudden my, my wallet is missing after you leave. And I had 20 other visitors before you came, and my wallet was still on the table. I can't say, well, somebody took my wallet. If I knew that you were the last person there, and it was there up until you came. I'd say, Richard, listen, man, you know, you took my wallet, man. Give me, you know, that way you can make amends because you took it. I mean, that might be a crude and silly example, but you understand what I'm saying, Richard. Yeah. yeah. You can't just throw out no generic term, America. What does that mean? It's a lot of people in America. Now, you've got some black like the officials that, that go along with this stuff even now. We point it out all the time. But they didn't create these issues. They're part of part, a lot of them are part and parcel to it, but they didn't create it. This European Western society, which is male European dominated, created a lot of these things. In fact, just about all of them. All of the problems that our people have faced have been created by Europeans. That's the reality. That's the truth. Just like he said, deal with the truth. You heard him say it. Yeah. That's the truth. Now, let, let me, because he said, 
the problem in the classroom. He mentioned some things in the beginning, Richard. Right. Let right. me read the, the what he when he said about the problem in the classroom. You're killing us in the classroom. This this is a published report by um, the National Institute of Early Education. I'm gonna read two of these things here. One and one by the Economic Policy Institute. The header says report by the the the, uh, re- the header says by the time they enter kindergarten, black students are most behind white peers. It says because they are l- less likely to have access to good preschool and pre-K programs, black children are on average nine months behind in math and almost seven months behind in reading by the time they enter kindergarten compared to their white peers. That's according to the National Institute for Early Education Research, which issued a report uh, on race in June 2021. In the study, researchers from Alice uh, Krauss and student Barnett highlighted that they said that unequal treatment toward black children begins at an early age, which in turn has contributed to inequalities in learning and development later in life. Math and reading abilities in kindergarten entry are powerful predictors of later school success, they says. Children who enter kindergarten behind are unlikely to catch up. This comes from the Economic Policy Institute. They issued a report in uh, May of this year. Schools are still segregated and black children are paying the price. That was the header. It says, well over six decades after the Supreme Court declared separate but equal schools to be unconstitutional in Brown versus the Board of Education, schools remain heavily segregated by race, race and ethnicity. What are the consequences of this lack of progress in integrating schools for black children? One, it depresses educational outcomes for black students, as shown in this report. It lowers their standardized test scores. Uh, Two, it widens performance gaps between white and black students. Three, it reflects and bolsters segregation by economic status, with black students being more likely than white students to attend high-poverty schools. Uh, and four, it means that the promise of integration and equal opportunity for black students remains an ideal rather than the reality. So, you know, when we put our students' education in the hands of other people, then you're going to get these results because they really don't want black children or black people to succeed. It's never been that in this country, and it hasn't changed. And you know, you know, Elliot is something else he mentioned that, and that, um, and I was looking for the most updated report. He said that America can't afford these two Americas, right? Mm-hmm. Now, where did that two America come from? Didn't that come from the Kerner Commission? Yeah, in '67. Mm-hmm. Our nation is moving towards two societies: one black, one white, separate but separate, unequal, and then unequal, but. That was 67. And and one thing that always gets lost for me when we bring it up, and, and I appreciate what you did the um, when we were with, with um, um, last week, when you raised, you showed the historical line in relationship to 
the uh, what's that the USDA because in 1944 Gunnar Myrtle in the American dilemma and this is just a, a point segregation was a system of deprivation forced upon the Negro group by the white group and as such represented a one-sided legal arrangement written under the pretext of equality but only applied and in a fo- and enforced against Negroes, which went against the basic premise of an egalitarian democracy. So we have reports from just 44, then 67, and then Byron Adel, Allen raises this in 2023 like it's some new thing. So when we raise the question, are not individuals having access but are black American citizens equal citizens in the American project? The reports speak for themselves. Exactly. The evidence says no. No matter how we feel personally, the evidence says no. If you're in court, Richard, and you produce the evidence, the evidence says no. I just wanted to contribute that. Uh, l- let me read this in reference to something else he said, because he mentioned four things. He said, before you even get to, they're killing us in the streets. He said, they're killing us in the boardrooms, they're killing us educationally. Uh, do you remember the other two, Richard? No, no, I'm well, let sorry. Me, because I, um, let, me, let me read this. This came from a report by the ACLU on December 16th of last year, almost a month, almost a year to the day. The header is racial, and it goes to what you were saying a minute ago, Richard. Racial disparity across New York is truly jarring. This is the report. It says a new analysis revealed stark differences between who gets convicted of felonies. A new analysis reveals the stark differences between who gets convicted of felonies across New York and what that means for fair jury trials. It has long been established that people of color, especially black people, are disproportionately criminalized, prosecuted, and incarcerated by criminal justice legal system. When it comes to arrests, charges, convictions, and sentences, at every step, black people are treated much more harshly than whites. Even though this reality is not new, just how unequal the system is across New York is surprising. In Manhattan, one of the wealthiest and least uh, equal places in the country, courts convict black people of felonies and misdemeanors at a rate of 21 times greater than that of white people over the past two decades. This disparity is the largest of any county in the state. The lawsuit challenges the constitutionality of the ban on people with felony convictions of serving on juries. The ban applies statewide in New York, but cases focus on Manhattan, where the racial disparity is the most severe. As many as one quarter of all otherwise jury-eligible black residents in Manhattan are barred from serving on juries 
because of prior minor felony convictions for black men that this disenfranchisement is even more severe. The law likely disqualifies more than 40% of them from jury service. For decades, political and law enforcement leaders have flooded black neighborhoods with police while arresting black people more frequently, regardless of what neighborhood they're in. Prosecutors then overcharge black people compared to whites, accused of the same crimes. This has resulted in racial disparities in felony conviction rates. These convictions, in turn, have devastating impacts on people's ability to participate in society, secure a job, find a place to live, and get an education. But they also fuel a cycle of racial based uh, racial bias convictions jury disenfranchisement not only shuts out thousands of black residents out of civic engagement but strips people of their right to be judged by a jury of their peers a jury system that underrepresents black new yorkers inevitably inevitably leads to more convictions of black people Richard, I mean, this is more evidence to what you're saying. More clear evidence to what you're saying. And it goes on and on. And that's why, you know, it requires, you know, a different type of strategic thinking. It requires this sovereign thinking, whether we do it as individuals or we do it in groups. But if we continue to try to push something, this a uh, round peg in this square, this small <laughs> square block. All we're going to get is resistance. Yes. Yes. And in, and, and in my estimation, it starts with leadership, developing conscious leadership that's going to move our people forward. We can see that this model that we have been using, even though our ancestors fought for that right to vote for people to represent them, it hasn't worked in the benefit of our people because the money that this system uses to develop political leadership, I mean, it's tainted from the start. So we have to develop the, the moral fiber among some of these young people to, to be able to resist the temptations. This, this, this money and this, influence, so-called influence and prestige that they wave in front of these people's faces. It really corrupts them. And then they do anything that these people that put them in power get them to or ask them to do. They don't even have to demand that they do it. And some of them will do it even before they're, they're asked to do it. But we can we can do something better than this. You have independent black movements that are developing ways to develop young minds towards conscious black leadership. Whether you're talking about what's happening in Mississippi, whether you're talking about the brothers and sisters in Maryland, uh, in Western Pennsylvania, with the New African uh, 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 People's Party, whether you're talking about what Charles Brown is doing in his neighborhood of New York and developing Operation Power, uh, uh, a brother uh, 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 Yeshatelli. Uh, with the, with the parties that he's developing in Florida, 
is conscious black leadership brothers like he out there in, in the uh, Missouri, St. Louis area, developing conscious black leadership and developing these things out of young minds to move our people forward with your community at heart and not special interests at heart, not religious organizations at heart. These things can be done. We don't just have to to just sit there and complain about these people. We can do something about that. Let me go to a couple of these callers from Wayne Richard. Let's go to 202. 202? Yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. And I want to commend you for your analysis on the uh, immigration issue. Um, a few people on that platform are doing the actual deep dive. And about 15 years ago, I worked with refugees, so I have somewhat of an insight. And you were absolutely correct in terms of how um, at this present time, people from Afghanistan and Ukraine are being settled all throughout this country. In fact, there were some that were complaining when they were settled in Chicago of not wanting to live near black and brown people. These were refugees from Ukraine. Now, um, just to fill in and flesh out a few points with respect to the current Venezuelan crisis of asylum seekers coming to this country, Um, and you are correct, America's foreign policy is a proximate cause of this crisis. Now, Donald Trump placed sanctions on Venezuela, uh, seized their assets, uh, attempted to install Juan Valdo from the opposition party who uh, is actually from Florida and was educated in this country. And there was also an attempt to uh, assassinate the current president, not unlike um, America's prior attempt to assassinate Hugo Chavez, which was documented in a film called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And um, what's happening is you have a situation where refugees, I'm not refugees, uh, asylum seekers in particular, they have a name of either an organization or a family member in the United States that they're supposed to uh, after giving them an, a date a date to prove their uh, asylum claims, they're supposed to connect them with that family member or organization. And what's happening in places like uh, Philadelphia, I'm, not, I'm sorry, places like uh, Texas and Florida and Arizona in particular, they're putting these people on buses and sending them to places like New York and uh, California and Chicago. You may have heard about the instance in New York where there was a person who committed suicide in a shelter in New York. That's because that person was in New York and they were supposed to be connecting with a family member in Detroit. But, you know, they didn't know New York from Detroit because one of those uh, Republican governors put them on a bus and sent them to New York City. Um, the other thing I wanted to comment on was with respect to the Omnibus Crime Bill of 1994. Um, actually, I remember clearly, because I was much younger uh, 30, 40 years ago than I am today, the plague our community was going through, crime, 
uh, I mean, it was like zombies, walking dead, and, you know, women exchanging uh, sex for drugs. And, I mean, there used to be somewhat of a code, but people selling to people's mothers that and, and, and aunts and what have you. And actually, it was the black community that demanded that something be done. It was the black community that clamored to people like uh, Congressman Scott and other um, congressional leaders that they wanted something to be done. At least Scott had the courage to acknowledge that he was wrong. And then the last thing I wanted to comment on, um, with respect to Byron Island, sometimes we have to take the message irrespective of the messenger. Byron Allen, um, you may recall when he bought the Weather Channel, he said he wasn't in the Negro leagues. He was in some other league. And um, I think he discovered his blackness once he bought the Grio and he found that it was lucrative to promote black content, because historically he was not doing that. Um, When you go back to his case with Comcast that he tried to get the black community to support Mm -hmm. when he talked about this legislation that was used, he was the, his lawyers were the ones that was using this old civil rights um, law because at the time, and I'm not defending Comcast by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just telling the truth. Comcast had given um, Diddy, his platform of revolt, they gave uh, a Latino company, a Spanish language con- uh, station, they gave Urban One, uh, Clio TV, and they gave, I believe it was Magic Johnson, a sports, uh, sports channel. And the content that Byron Allen had really wasn't uh, the demographics that Comcast thought would be uh, lucrative or, or, or successful. And so he bought the uh, Black News Tonight uh, uh, platform and the grill, and he decided to do black content, and he realized that it was lucrative. Sister, thank you for your contribution. Richard? I don't have any disagreement. Um, and and which, uh, what you say, sister, the only, and the only thing I would raise in relationship to um, the crime bill in or the 1990s, uh, and I was, I was trying to um, pull back um, the, the whole point of what is that, the Iran-Contra mm-hmm. and, and of the drugs that were brought in by, again, the foreign policy of the United States that created the the environment that created the the condition that was described by the 1990s to where black people, just like now with the immigration policy, black people are responding to something. What's in front of us when what's in front of us was created by American foreign policy. Oh, oh, absolutely, if I may. It wasn't until nearly a decade later when Gary Webb's Dark Alliance came out did we find out that, you know, about the Iran Contra and drugs in exchange uh, for weapons. But I'm I'm not, by any stretch of the imagination, dismissing that. But, But we also have to recognize the fact that it was members of our community 
who actually were clamoring for uh, something to be done about, you know, the conditions where uh, we had, and I remember, you know, there were border babies in the hospitals who have grown up to be adults right now today who are troubled individuals. Uh, There were women uh, selling their bodies in exchange for drugs. There were women selling their children, exchanging their children in exchange for drugs. And I remember I was dating a doctor, and his brother was a Ph.D., and he, his brother got strung out on crack, you know. And so um, I remember that time very clearly um, and what was taking place. And I'm just grateful to you guys that you guys don't deal with things on the surface. You do a deep dive and give a, 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 a forensic analysis, if you will, because there are people on platforms that are exasperating the situation, who are fueling misinformation, who are trying to mislead our people. I mean, it, everybody has a point of view, but tell the truth. Don't just push an agenda. Don't push the MAGA agenda because they're the ones that are paying and trust. Right. Sister, listen, let me say this to you. Uh, me and Richard just said, listen, it's you, it's people like you that help us do this deep dive. We we're doing this together, so it's 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 not me and Richard. It's it's people like you, and I thank you for your contribution for, to uh, uh, on the program tonight. Well, I thank you, and I tune in. I don't. This is my first time calling, but I do tune in, and I appreciate you know you guys speaking truth to power because there's a lot of people who really or some of them have blogs on YouTube. Some of them on Black Talk Radio, and they're deliberately misleading our people with false MAGA information. Yes. And I thank you for allowing me to have a conversation with you. Thank you for your contribution, sister. Don't be a stranger. <laughs> Please. Uh, let's go to McKinley, McKinley, Texas. Uh, hello. How's you all doing today? Great, sir. You know, I, I remember, I hear people saying about people random and raving about doing something about the crime. And, um, you know, I was living in an area of Dallas where we were, you know, were trying to get things cleaned up as well. But isn't it amazing that the solution was to put people in jail rather than go into the source where all the drugs were coming in and, and drying up that supply. I, I mean, I'm always amazed by people, some of these politicians who get on and say that we had to do something so they passed the bill. Now they know as well as what we know, and even better, more so because they're involved in a lot of this thing, these things, that if they really want to stop it, then they shut down the people who's bringing it in. You know, I mean, but to to arrest the people who are the victims, and I'm not saying don't do anything about the people who are involved in it. I mean, you, you have to do something. But to really resolve the problem, then you go to the source. It's just like the thing that happened with the opioid crisis, and I know you all remember this very well. When the last, well, when 
Trump and Hillary Clinton, that presidency, everyone talked about the opioid crisis and that they needed to do something about it and not to arrest the people because those people were sick and we need to have treatment centers to treat those people who were addicted. Mm-hmm. Now you go right back to the problem with the, with the crack cocaine epidemic that was in our community, which is, you know, a farce when you hear people like Bobby Rush say what he said. What did they say? Throw them niggas in jail. You know, mm-hmm. it was a totally different response. One side, it was compassion. The other side was drop the hammer, you know. So, it, I mean, it's really just hypocritical. And I know these people know more than what I do. And I can see the solution for that. And they he come back and make a sorry excuse that, yeah, you know, he was wrong in doing this. And, and then... And then, and then here's the thing, and I know you all will probably fall out when I say it. You get all these people who have all these failures who were totally in their, in their positions in Congress, and then they quit and they become preachers. <laughs> like that's going to do us any good. We got more preachers than we'll, we'll ever. We got more preachers in churches than we'll ever know what to do with. If we had a business for every church, we wouldn't even have this these conversations that we're having. We don't need any more preachers. You know, we need people who's got good sense and who can resolve problems, not preachers. <laughs> and then the last thing I will say in terms of this uh, integration problem, uh, immigration problem, rather. Look, I lived in Houston. I lived in in Dallas, uh, both. And I'm back in Houston again. And look, you had, when I first moved to Houston in 78, you had quite a few black people who were working in construction and so forth. Within about three to five years, all of that was wiped out. And then you had if you find a black person on construct in construction in Houston or Dallas, it's very, very rare. And they're bringing these people in because they're cheap labor. Now, they're sending these people to New York and Chicago and so forth, but there's a whole lot of them that's undocumented that's in Houston and Dallas. And I know okay. because at one time I used to do a lot of uh, – uh, bought properties and sometimes, you know, we, we would go out and get people to come and do some of the work, you know, repairs. And you could go out on the corner and pick up these people and bring them and have them do work. So that's a farce. I mean, they're just using that as, polit- that's just politics to just show that they're trying to do something to satisfy the, you know, the people who are Culturally, ultra racist. They're just doing that, but they've got plenty of those people in Houston, Dallas, and everyone else because the uh, central 
and the Hispanics are the new workforce that they're using to drive down wages. So that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Thank you for taking my call. Brother, thank you for your contribution as always. And, you know, um, Elliot and to the brother, one thing that you, as you were raising about um, just the disparities of the drug, the um, how drug sentencing and even policy, it brought to my mind, you know, in um, 2018, 2019, there was a ship that came docked in Philadelphia with a billion dollars worth of cocaine. I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) One billion. A ship, and then you know I'm looking at this um, a, a f- paragraph out of the um, freight wave ar- article because they didn't had um, up to uh, you know prosecution of crew members, but th- th- this struck me to the point that we're what we're wrestling with when we're dealing with this you know the systemic reality um, when we're talking about the protection we have to create within our community in order to not to be victim, not just to, you know, what we call um, white hegemonic power. It says, ever since the record-breaking drug bust on June 17, 2019, industry insiders speaking to the American shippers have marveled at the scale of the smuggling operation and wondered aloud how, how it was carried out. How was that much cocaine, the weight equivalent to three fully grown male uh, male African elephants, sneaked on onto one ship when it was underway at sail, sea, not bereft in port, given the inherently close quarters of the shipboard accommodation? How did more of the crew, and for that matter, the captain, not know what was going on? To the point how integrated the criminal culture of America is in relationship to, but the impact it has on us. And that's why it's important to the point that you bring up, why we must be vigilant in understanding of how, how insidious this is and how vulnerable we are. And there is no, well, a person can go and say, oh, well, I'm sorry, and I'm going to be a preacher to save your soul. <laughs> Boy. Wow, let's let's go to New York, New York, New York City. Greetings, brother. This is brother Maurice. Greeting to you, brother Richard. Greeting to you, brother Elliot. Yes, sir. Yeah, I just want to um, touch base on a couple of things. You know, and you know when when I was listening to the the, the sister talk, and she was. Um, very articulate, and I would love for her to continually join us around this table. I consider this like uh, a library in Timbuktu where we are exchanging information and we're learning as a as a group. And I think it's important, that, you know, again, as I, I'll say to everyone that's out there, that we have to continually support these brothers and the work that they're doing because it's very needed in a time such as this. Um, I thought about... Um, American Violet, we have talked about that. Most people don't remember the movie. Went back to 2000, it starred Nicole uh, Bahiri, and it really talked about this whole drug um, enforcement and how it applies and the system that is so twisted around individuals and how 
these these um they made it to the point where there was incentives for governments and police departments and all these things to continually arrest people because as long as they kept arresting people, the funding kept coming in. Understand the difference if in terms of um the situation like if i'm in if i if I'm in a boat and a boat start leaking and we all end up in in the water, if another go- boat comes by and we start screaming for the boat, you know it doesn't mean that you know you you pull one one person out and you leave the other one in and so the reason I'm saying that is is like I'm looking at the situation because yeah, I'm a little short sighted about the immigrant information i i can you can accuse me of that, and I'll tell you I'm guilty because I'm living the the impact of what it is in my community. And I'm looking at black people as I wrote a, I wrote a thesis when I was in college about my neighborhood. And I said, from, um, from neighborhood to ghetto, it went from what we call a neighborhood to a ghetto. And then I looked at the misunderstood interests and mis ignored interests of black people in this particular community. So yeah, I'm going to be a little sensitive if I see some other, some other individuals that are coming here and receiving resources, but it doesn't, but, but I, but I love what you did, brother Elliot was this, you help us keep the eye on the prize, right? Because it is about who's doing what and how they're doing it. Um, I don't know if you and Brother Richard are watching uh, Netflix because this is another debate that's been going on. Is um, Leave the World Behind, the film that was uh, produced by uh, the company uh, which uh, President Obama and uh, his wife were supposed to be involved with. Yeah, but yeah, the thing yeah, I saw that the other uh, day, I, but go ahead. Yeah, but so I mean, I don't know if he was going to raise that particular issue, but I know you know as deep as the knowledge that you two brothers have, and especially brother Richard, when you looked at the symbolism, of some things in the movie, I was like, hold a second, those exits, uh, Fort Moses, Fort mm-hmm. Comfort, that ship running up on the on the island on the, on the beach, White Lion, you know, now some people might not get it. You know, um, Fort Comfort is where, you know, in 1619, slaves were, mm-hmm. the Africans who were enslaved, mm-hmm. excuse me, mm-hmm. were dropped off, and the name of the ship was White Lion. And if you understand anything about Africans being in America, at least, you know, you understand what, what Fort Moses is down in Florida where mm-hmm. that was supposed to be recognized as one of the first places where black people were, you know, acknowledged or whatever in terms of being in control. So I thought this whole thing was interesting because white people are all upset because the, the, the young girl that was, she was laying across her father's chest when they were living in the basement and stuff. And the white people was upstairs and she said, you got to be careful of white people. And the the thing that I thought about that, it, it, it I thought about that deeply because I was watching the picture taker. I don't know if you remember this, an independent film it's a PBS film. And it was dealing with Ernest Withers. Now, brother, you know, brother Richard and you and, and brother Elliot have already talked about this on the show. But the brother that took all of the pictures during the civil rights movement and how he was mm-hmm. uh, co-opted and working for the FBI. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, man, when I sat there, and I'm not going to lie to you, I watched as all of these individuals were being exposed and being documented, and just watching Dr. King walking to his own death. And I listened to a bunch of people take no accountability for that. And it's the same thing. It's the same analogy of what's going on with the death of, of, of black America. We have black people 
that are in positions that know what's going on and won't take any accountability. And so um, I'm just going to say that, and I'll, I'll, I'll get off and uh, let some of these other intelligent brothers and sisters call in. Listen, I I, um, <laughs> I, I understand your frustration because it, you know, it as a man, it gets to me too because I, Maybe it's because of my my parents and the way I was raised. I, I couldn't do that. I, I couldn't. You know, you you see these type of things happening and devastating your community, and you keep. You know, the, the same people that's doing this, you uh, develop allegiances with them to pass other bills. And th- I, I don't understand that type of thinking. I, you can't get me to understand that, Maurice. You know, he he stated in that apology that, you know, black people wanted something done. And black people did want something done about these situations that was creating uh, this stuff with, you know, these drugs would be flooded into our communities and to to turn into community into the walking dead. They did want something done. But then to, to, you know, to, to wipe his hands of the responsibility of saying, I didn't know that that type of... You, you don't know who you're dealing with? Just like Cynthia McKinney said a couple of weeks ago on the program about know yourself and know your enemy. See, but the thing is, black people don't consider Europeans that they're enemy. I mean, all you got to do mm. is look, look at the proof of what we've been dealing with. These people haven't been operating as our friends. So some people use the argument, well, I know Bobby Jelinski or Sue Polajinski or whatever, and they're nice people. Okay, Sue Polajinski and Bobby Sawinski might be a nice person. But as a whole, these people have not been friends to black people. They're not. They're not. And they haven't been. So I, I'm yeah. just saying that in reference to, to what, what you were saying. I, I You know what? I, I didn't see all of the. I did. I did start watching that movie. I didn't see it all because mm-hmm. I was I was kind of distracted while I was watching it. But uh, I want to go back and see and see and see, uh, and see all of it because I, you know, it was a lot of interesting things happening in that in that picture, and I don't know exactly where they were going. But I guess you saw the yeah, whole I, thing. Well, I'm I'm not gonna lie to you and say I watched the whole thing. I didn't. I only watched up to a certain point because, like you said, I mean, there's so many things that are going on. But, I, but the, the thing is, is this, we have to find a way to trust each other again. Because until we trust each other, we can't accomplish anything. Yes, I agree we, with that. I agree with that. <laughs> I agree with that totally. Hey, thanks for your contribution, brother. Thank you. All right. Let's go to Philadelphia. You Are you there? Oh, lost that call. Let's go back to New York City. Put me back on me, Elliot. Yes, sir. Let's go to Philadelphia again. Philadelphia. Good, good evening, brother Elliot and brother Richard. How y'all brothers doing tonight? Yes, sir. Uh, praise be to our lives. I always say, you know, brother Maurice. And you know, I know he's still listening, but Bruce, I love you, brother. You made some good points. Wait a minute. <laughs> as well as, I'm sorry, what's that, Elliot? Okay, we had a little little snafu there with your line. Go ahead. 
Oh, did, did, did you hear me? Okay. Y'all were just saying, I appreciate Brother Maurice Carr. He made some very good points, as well as the brother from Texas and, and, and our dear sister from uh, New York. I had to kind of chuckle a little bit, Elliot, because the sister said, I have Carr, she said that uh, that the Ukrainians said they wanted to be around black people. That, she remember she made the comment? Yes, she did. Well, I, I find that hard to believe because I, I thought, don't we stand with Ukraine? Well, that's what your leadership said. <laughs> you know, you know, being facetious, of course, right, Elliot? Oh yeah, I mean, but but that's that in that in, that in itself shows the problem. No, they don't, they don't want to. Elliot, this is right. Now, Elliot and brother, Elliot and brother Richard in the time for waking listen audience. This is right behind when all this stuff started with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. You remember they, they they was over there wouldn't let black people on the train. They was calling the black people the N word. Was they was letting animals on the train before they even let black people on there. So, so this is a backdrop to all that. But now we heard from our dear sister New York. They don't live around black people. But our leadership, like Lloyd Austin and them, and Linda Greenfield and, and Meeks and, and Jeffries. We stand with Ukraine. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, man. And you know, Bill, when you stop and look at how these Negroes are, now when that was said in New York, when she said how the state of New York, how they, how they discriminate against black people up there statewide, keeping black people off of juries. Now, why the hell, and I asked this with every due honesty, why the hell mixing Jeffrey's not putting their energy in and trying to get that change, but yet they over there tell us when they stand with some more racist, vile, Mm-hmm. Not as big as Israel. They 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 love Israel so much. They go for Eric Adams' handkerchief and stuff too. They can do all that for some damn bigots in, in Israel who don't have no love for black people. But yet they can. But yet this. But like the court to the sister, these brothers even after they serve their time, a lot of time they can't even vote. And if they vote, if they allowed to vote, like like the sister said, they can't serve on the jury because because of conviction and stuff like that. But they run around telling them they stand with Israel. Well, and see, get us that leadership, man. And see, Ellie, dig the move now. Dig the move now. If you remember what the sister was saying earlier, she said about how, you know, black people was clamoring for that, and and and, and you got to put it always in the context. You're right, Ellie. We was clamoring for something. What we, we wasn't clamoring for was wholesale incarceration of our people. We wasn't. We wanted the conditions changed in our community so black brothers wouldn't be out there selling drugs and sisters wouldn't be hooked on crack selling their bodies. But, but see, dig the mood though. The sister's right on point when you look at the context of what she says. When she says. Black people was clamoring for that. Cause remember, Elliot, when, 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 when Hillary Clinton ran for president, remember I told you about the historic meeting, the infamous meeting up in Mount Airy with, with Marion Tasco, another black woman who, who, who got a very dis, dis dubious distinction, if you will, of, of, of running up black vendors out of Mount Airy and, and stuff. But that's a conversation for another time. And she's a Sherelle, was her pro, was she, Sherelle Parker was one of her protégés. So that shows you right there why well, you need to know about Sherelle Parker and Marin Tasco. But anyway, Marin Tasco during the campaign of 2016, this goes right back to my, to my, my sister in New York was saying, and I hope my dear sister's still listening, because this is what she said is right on point. If you remember that meeting, up there at the Rexon up in Mount Air where Bill Clinton was speaking because he came here to, to, to campaign for his wife, her of the super predators. Super predators. Yeah, you know what? You, okay. uh, I, I want you to call right back because your line is a little jabble, uh, j- jumbled. You, 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 can you hear me a little better now? I can hear you better now. 
Okay, yeah, okay, thanks. Yeah, but yeah, sometimes you know it's rain. You know, I hate to say this, but when it rains and stuff, man, for whatever reason, when it rains up here, and 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 it's part of Germantown. These lines, and not just my line, but even a lot of my neighbors' lines get kind of messed up when it rains. But anyway, to try to tie everything together, when 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 Clinton came here to that Rex and the campaign for Hillary Clinton, her, her the super predators comment when she called out people super predators, black people was on his behind at that meeting, and it was not only were they jumping on Clinton. Because a friend of mine was at that meeting and stuff. They wouldn't only jump on Bill Clinton because of his wife's super predator comments. They would jump on him being a president at the time as the co-signer of that bill. And guess, and guess what Bill Clinton did? I mean, I, I'm going to refresh your memory if you forgot. Bill Clinton took some responsibility for it, but you know what he did, L.A.? This go up with the sister in New York was saying. He made sure he threw them niggas under the bus. He said, right up there in my area, because a friend of mine was, was there. He put and said, all right, I get it. Y'all, y'all, y'all mad with me and, and all that because of, because of crime bill. And, I get, and, you know, he was saying the stuff that he knew black people wanted to hear. I know it devastated black families and all that, you know. But don't forget, it was your black leadership that came with me. He said, it was banging my door down at the White House saying something needed to be done. You know, so my, you give a point, Alvin Richard, Bill Clinton made sure he let the black community know that it wasn't just him, the Negroes wanted it done. You, you follow what I'm saying? No, no. I'm, I mean, he made sure, because like I said, my friend was at that meeting, and Bill Clinton made sure he threw that, them handkerchief and black leadership under the, under the bus. He made sure he wanted everybody to know that it wasn't just me, this evil white man, which I am, but it was y'all Negroes that wanted it too, y'all black, especially your black leadership. Don't don't just jump on me now, you know what I mean? So my point, I say all that to say this, it just shows. It just shows how out of touch these Negroes are with their people and stuff, man. It just shows, I mean, it's clearly, and I've said this to you and Richard and, and, and the time for waking this on this many times, black folks will never get nowhere in this country, and, and I just have to be blunt with you. As long as we as people keep voting for these individuals on the city, state, and federal level, on the city level, as long as we keep voting for the likes of Sherelle Parker, people like uh, uh, Michael Nutter, on a state level, voting for people like the Jordan Harris's of the world, and, and, and all these clowns, Malcolm Kenyattas, and on the federal level, people like the Dwight Evans, the Hakeem Jeffrey, the Gregory Mix, the Barack Obamas, Long we keep voting for these kind of individuals, we can forget about it. Because them Negroes are not trying to shake up the system. They are not trying to, to bring a new reality for our people. They comfortable with the white man foot up our ass. They getting theirs. They are getting paid. They getting rich. They are getting rich themselves. They come in as a so-called poor or, or, or just average person. They don't leave out that office that way. They leave out, we just said, a city council president, handkerchief head, disgraceful Negro, 40 years in city council, 20 years as, as council president. He's good. He's a disgrace. Come on, Dow Clark, a disgraceful Negro, never did nothing his years as president and ever moved our people forward, but he's leaving out for a pocket full of money, a pocket full of money. He's rich, filthy rich now, man, you know, and, and it's what they do to our people. They get in these offices and they make sure they enrich themselves. They build all kinds the coalitions, and like you said earlier a few minutes ago, they make deals with white racist bigots who they know don't hate, don't have no love for the people to sign bills and legislation making side deals, backroom deals to get with these devils that they know are going to devastate their people, man. They know they, they're not stupid. going with they're going to do. So what did they do? Uh, uh, he he apologized. He didn't know he was going to do all that. Nobody want to hear that. Yeah, I'm gonna have to because your line is is goggled. So I'm gonna. Um, no, we, no problem. I'm gonna go. You can go to the next caller. I'm good. Good. Thanks for I your call. I'll talk to Peace. Right. Remember, not listen to the. 
We have one more call up here, Richard. The, the line dropped off Philadelphia. Uh, well, call back if you want, want to get in. It's 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. The other Philadelphia call just dropped off the line. Uh, Richard, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, that's why I like to go on over for We get uh, uh, interesting insights and, and calls. I, I appreciate all of the calls tonight. Uh, the sister was a new caller, and I hope she don't be a stranger. Uh, she added a lot to the conversation when she called in. Right. And and just to, to let the brother know from Phil um, that um, she's from D.C. I think that yeah, call came yeah, from. Yeah, that was from D.C. Yeah, he was saying she's from New York. That was from D.C. Uh, let's, let's go to uh, Newport News. Newport News. What's up, Brother Elliot? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Is that, uh, I just wanted to make sure, since, since you hit on it, I want to make sure it's on the recording. This is what the line in that movie was that the young man referred to. Quote, I'm asking you to remember that if the world falls apart, trust should not be doled out, doled out easily to anyone, especially white people. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Repeat that. I'm asking you to remember that if the world falls apart, trust should not be doled out easily to anyone, especially white people. Man, Twitter went off. Everybody from that old white boy, Matt Walsh, to Christopher Rufo, white folks got ignorant as hell. And my only comment was, when have you ever seen white folks not have a violent backlash to the truth? That's what America's all about. Don't hit me with the truth. <laughs> and 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 uh, Obama was on there saying something about he just did referral and consulting for it. I put a link in here for you so you can read over it because you'll see how he even strayed away from actually standing behind what the quote said. Oh, so, y'all keep so, on putting in that word, brother. <laughs> Wait a minute. Say they, that. They, they'll, they'll beat up on them now and say the right thing. Uh, no, go ahead. Finish your thought, Rich. No, no, I was just responding to um, Brother Otis that they were, I, I'm looking at the article, Obama faces back, black backlash for films warning about white people. And, and, and his response, I guess, the, you know, the, what I'm hearing is response is that he was just a consultant. He wasn't, it, like, he didn't have anything to do with the state. Yeah, well, he, he knowing him, he probably did. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, you know what? I didn't even catch that. And I think I seen up to that part where he's talking about, but like I said before, I was, when it was on, I was doing other things, so I didn't really pay attention to it. But I, I'm going to go back and, and uh, see the whole thing. Because uh, it was an interesting premise the way it started out, uh, so I'll, I'll check it out. Oh, Alan, you got to do it because if you go further down in the paragraph, it go, it explains to you how him and his wife were consulted, and then he gets to talking about how he gave notes and insight on how situations should be. But after he gave what he thought was a nice rebuttal, that's when the white boys, all the rednecks, went in on him saying that what he did is he he made situations that, because it's all about national security and all that. So they're saying he used his inside information to make that movie realistic. So it was important that because of his leftist ideology, he had to make a crack on white people. 
They're literally going after him saying he's responsible for that content. Now, you remember with us with Dango and everything else, and I was by the poetic license. But with him, his, he's hardcore. He, he did it this way. He wasn't just a consultant. I'm going to show you the, the double standard. White folks get mad anytime you smack them upside the head with the truth. That's the bottom line. I'm from the South. I've seen it from the time I figured out something was wrong with him. I was seven or eight years old. <laughs> one thing one thing that this brings up, you and um, Brother Maurice um, bring up about these films that I'm like, really? Um, if You know, and I, I, I don't get to, I'm, I only get to see things through um, the you know, the advertisement and in the Facebook feeds, right, um, of these different films and, you know, the whatever, the Netflix and the Amazon. But this, this onslaught of imagery, because um, what, what, what's being raised is, well, we heard when they, um, the brother that got fired for doing the Anunce, right, how he got fired um, on the film because they felt the the director felt that his his projection was too um, strong um, for or, you know in him and and there's a couple of scenes which he you know he brings out about the condition of black people and then I'm looking at this here um, this other you know I'm hearing what the, what's being placed in in this one bringing up about you know what is it the uh, organizer. Um, um, for um, that, this film that y'all are talking about, uh, and I don't know why his name just went out of out of my mind. That for the um, you know the, the march on Washington, they organize around that 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 Obama know how this image is being played up, and then I'm seeing this here film that is called the American Society of the Ameri- of the Amer- the American Society of the Magical Negroes, and in the in the promo of it is saying is asking the question, what is the most dangerous animal on the planet? And it's saying white folks. But the film is centered, from what I'm getting from the advertisement, is centered around how black folks have to be, uh, you know, create an environment to not anger or take white folks' anger to where they become dangerous to black folks or be dangerous, period. This imagery that is being placed, and Brother Maurice brought up um, how on the New York sub um, subway, you know, when they're um, dealing with the advertisement, how they're using now they're they're dealing with nostalgia of the what's that the forties and fifties, and they're using Angie Mama as the imagery uh, for the metro system. Mm-hmm. So what I'm um, what I'm, I'm I'm raising is as as they're producing. Now we're talking about the the political decision making that black leadership in these places are making, and we're talking about even a ex president. And he was getting a, he he was getting whipped up on when he was in office. Him and Michelle. I mean, they were being egregious in relationship to how they were um, um, beating up on them, um, but. Here, even as an ex-president, you can be able to be accused of of using, you know, this kind of backlash because of a quote as it relates to white folks. What's this? What I'm saying is the propaganda in these films 
to condition the next generation of black folks to be acceptable. Just like we're saying, we just got finished saying, we're reacting to the the, the chemicals that are coming into the community, the black community, which is done by foreign policy. We're reacting to the foreign policy that's being done in other countries that are bringing immigrants into, and we're reacting to what's in front of us. Um, but what's being developed is us reacting against ourselves because we're not, we don't have, as you, what I hear you're saying, um, Elliot, and which I agree with, we don't have the leadership or the strategic vision of what is our interest being in America. That's, I mean, to, to me, and they're creating propaganda imagery for another generation to say, well, well, this is the best you can get. Byron Allen says, if you only got 1% in the Ivy League colleges, for them, that's, that's the best you can get. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Rich, can I, can I say one other thing? That, that's, that, that hawk is right back to the same thing that Martin Luther King said uh, before he passed. The, the trouble with white folks is if you're going to let them dictate what goes on, they're only going to go for so far. Mm-hmm. And that's so far as long as it don't make them uncomfortable. But I'm going to say it again. I keep saying even in the reparations movement, I keep telling these people, the Reverend Barbers and all of them, bless their heart in your religious beliefs. But it is a proven fact since they landed on these shores. There is no way to combat the white man without violence. He's going to bring violence. Backlash is what he does. Anything that does not, look, look what they're doing around the world. As a matter of fact, to show you how bad it is, when it's so bad, so war and confusion is what the white man wants, because that's the one thing that actually does unify this country. How so many black people push for imperialism to be pushed all around the world, especially on the, on the continent, I don't understand. But here's my point. They were telling you that the 150 or 60 billion that they gave to Ukraine was because they had to stop the Russians. Now where they at? The Israelis took the time to, to do what they wanted to do, cleanse Gaza of the Palestinians so they can have a beach resort in the next 10 years. They, they, they literally had... Oh, no. ...you on TV, but even the damn uh, uh, Zionists and, and, the, and the Jewish Palestinians and everybody else will tell you, it's textbook genocide. So everything they're saying that they're doing, cutting off the water, cutting off the electric, cutting off the calories so that people uh, can get, so you can't sustain life. That is in the definition <laughs> of genocide. So it ain't no question that the U.S. is the one that's supplying the arms to them. If the U.S. wants to stop this, they would. But I'm telling you, the way for them to win is to keep wars going. And if you ain't careful, Atlanta ain't going to be the only regional training center that you see. They're going to be about eight or nine of them across the country. And you know what? I thought Bannon was crazy when I heard him say this about four or five months ago. I listened in sometimes for 20, 30 minutes. He said, what's going to happen when Trump comes back in office? The U.S. is the only democracy that doesn't have an internal domestic army. So what they're doing basically is by default, 
making every police department a what? Domestic police force. You don't have to call in the army to do the work. You call in the National Guard to stand guard so that the police can do what they've always been doing. As a matter of fact, I'm going to send you an email on something that I saw on another program showing how, how much money these police academies have been paying some of these IDF officers to go around and tell you that, as a matter of fact, New Jersey just settled a case, I believe it is. They settled a case for police corruption and their own legal department in New Jersey said that the consultants they were paying to train their police department were completely antithetical to what the taxpayers' money was being spent on. Better policing. And these people were literally telling the police officers, if you follow the rules they taught you in the academy, you will be killed. You have to see these people as the enemy, and you must always be concentrating on going home alive. And you must also understand if you kill enough of them, that it will become part of the job. No problem. I'm going to send you the clip in the email. You probably will have a show about it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's from a documentary called Do Not Resist from seven years ago. I couldn't believe I hadn't seen it until I heard saw it the other day. But look, keep on doing that work. Sorry to hold you. Hey, listen, let me say this before you go, because I want you to repeat that. You said that one of the, the new strategies now is to use these police departments as uh uh, uh, de facto. Go ahead. Domestic police force, exactly. No central command, but since they're all trained the same, and you don't have to take a dictate from Congress anything to move them around, you basically have a, a domestic police force, the police department. And as a matter of fact, Bannon even said that the bad part about it is they hadn't taken over the FBI. So they're not going to be as strong as they should be. <laughs> See, in other words, the goal was to make the FBI be in control of all police departments. But because it's decentralized, you can't sue anybody. They're all coordinated, trained units, but they're not a single organization. I mean, a white man is kind of, as a matter of fact, I keep telling you, I get tired of these black people are talking about the solution is move back south. Let me say something to you. Look at South, South Africa. To this day, the black people do not run that country. They don't own barely 15% of the total wealth in that country in anything. So commerce, the banking, the land, the you name it. So white folks don't have no problem having minority rule. This, this mess about you just go your way and move. No, I'm telling you, it's going to be violent. I, I hope I'm still alive to see some of it, not that I necessarily want to initiate it. Thanks for your contribution. Richard, yes, yes. You know that la one of the last things that uh, brother was just said about the they they want um, these police departments to be uh, used in that fashion, right? Um, <laughs> you know, I thought about what happened here in Pennsylvania. You know where I'm going, don't you? Yeah. Um, the guy that had a long track record of being a racist. Uh, 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 fat pig of the, that that uh, that guy that would ran the uh, FOP here in Pennsylvania, uh, uh, in Philadelphia, uh, and black people voted for um, Shapiro because they used that uh, 
boogeyman of uh, what's that guy's name, Mastriano, who was a Trump supporter and a MAGA, about oh you can't let him get in. You remember that, Bridget? There you go. Yeah. Now Shapiro goes in, and he gives McNesby a new position that cr- was created in Pennsylvania. He leaves the police department here. We already had a reputation among black folks. I guess his reputation was better among these black elected officials. And they created a new position in Pennsylvania. And uh, let me read. It says McNesby uh, moves on to become the director of local public safety outreach at the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency. Does that kind of coincide with brother who's just mentioned? Yeah. Director of public safety. He did that, and that code word that you always mention, Richard, public safety. Director of Public Safety Outreach at the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency. Now, the last time I checked, uh, Shapiro, who was a Democrat who lobbied all that black support, was a Democrat. And McNesby, who he gave this new position to in Pennsylvania, was a Trump-supporting Republican. You remember that, Richard? There you go. So, you know, we kept we keep on getting played out of position, some of our people, about these. Listen, just like Malcolm said, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, both want power, but they want to use the black uh, 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 vote as a political football to gain power. <laughs> you remember what he said? Yep. There you go. I don't, you know, Elliot, um, as we, you know, I don't even know what to say, you know, but reemphasize because one of the things that has to be, you know, formulated um, in order to produce the type of leadership that you say we have to have, if we're going to use, and I, I use this electoral process and these offices only as to until we take the position that whether it's being in the South or whatever, that we're operating as a unified sovereign thinking entity that we have to create the leadership that has the world view that really um, could even produce as an example, a foreign policy that would be different than the foreign policy that America is presenting because we see their foreign policy, the effect it has on us, a defense capacity. We see how being in America, leaving ourselves vulnerable. Well, we, whether, and I'm, when I say defense is whether you're going to go um, defense and protecting yourself from the, what's that, the Elon roots, or if you, for those who think that are offensive, but you have to have a system that is that is protecting your interests, but you can't have that unless you have a sovereign thinking position, and you can't have that unless you have the leadership that recognizes they're looking out for your best interests as a people, and you can't have that unless you develop them. So until we can develop those individuals, we're looking at ourselves vulnerable um, in this world in this country, as a people, and also having a lot of collaborators. And I was, I was looking at this in this paragraph of 
in his book, um, Black is a Country, um, by Nicole Paul Singh. And he's talking about bunch. And he says, and th- this, this is when I think about the black leadership and the discussion we've had so far this evening, in this paragraph, he says, what may seem like a dramatic distance between Mark Bunch's Marxism of 1936 and his defense of the fertile soil, quote unquote, of American liberalism after 1940, it belies by some important commonalities, including his prior rejection, his prior rejection of an autonomous black standpoint on political action and his strong identification with the United States national purpose as the object and horizon of political reform. Isn't that the position that the the black congressional caucus take? Isn't that the position that uh, Rush took? And it goes on to say, quote, unlike the colonial people bunch asserted in 1945, the Negro his, who is culturally American, has no nationalist or separatist ambitions, quote-unquote, offering him as the embodiment of, this, prom, of his, this promise, Bunch became the highest-ranking black official at the Office of Strategic Service and principal author of a series of psych-ops pamphlets for U.S. military campaigns in North and West Africa. Don't we have generals? This is 1940, right? This is 2023. Uh, he suggested that the, that the elite African may be more, quote-unquote, more sensitive on racial matters than the U.S. Negro, but could be won over by the quote, League of Americans as liberalizing force in world affairs. In an ironic twist, Bunch was not beyond deploying the ideal of race in the national interest. With regard to Africa campaigns, he concluded, quote, carefully chosen Negroes could prove more effective than whites, owing to their unique ability to gain more readily the confidence of the native on the basis of their right to claim a good relationship. Isn't America could be a training black America and black, um, black American um, po- um, politics could, could be the good training ground for this good, this uh, carefully chosen Negroes who can prove more effective than whites. I mean, this is no joke. I mean, we have a serious um, decision to have to be made. Yes. You know, that's that's the point that I'm looking at. And this has been something that's been going on. It ain't just happening now. There was no black generals in Africa in 1940. <laughs> Look what we got now. <laughs> wow. And, and Richard, listen, it just shows you uh, how dangerous bunch was back then mm-hmm. on a certain level because you said that they didn't have any and and you're right they didn't have any generals or any head of africom they didn't even have africom then but it just shows you how they have developed their strategy based on some of the things that he laid out 
or put forth about the use of his people and how dangerous a guy like Bunch was and how dangerous some of these people who are in Bunch's stead are to this day. And you have people out there that are in Bunch's stead. Jeffrey Meeks, uh, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, or Barack Obama. All these people was in Bunch's stead, and I know you agree. Yes. And you see how dangerous it was to plot to use our people for the benefit of this American project. I mean, what's the difference of him being on a plantation and when they when he would hear different things go right back and tell the quote unquote plantation master or what was going on? What's the difference? What's the difference beside a time period? What's the difference, Richard? Mm. What's the difference? None at all. We got we got one more. Let's go to one more call before we wind up. Philadelphia. Are you there? That call dropped. Don't worry about it. Richard, before we leave, let me give the lineup one time for the Awakening Media. Monday, you know what? Well, go ahead. I, I, I'll, I'll just go ahead with what I'm doing. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives. With Brother Oshie, always interesting topics and dialogue on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on in the week, Mississippi on the move the Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi from 7 to 9 on Thursdays. Richard, they had an interesting program last Thursday uh, where they were talking about some of the unsung heroes of the freedom movement in the 60s mm-hmm. and people that the average people wouldn't know about. Uh, and they had a couple, they had some callers, a couple of people on there said that they appreciated what the brothers were doing because they had no clue who these people were. And they lived in Mississippi. Some of them said they grew up in Mississippi all their life. And then a sister called up and thanked them for mentioning her father mm. on the program because of, you know, what he did for her. She was a young girl and would take her into these places and refuse to leave, uh, you know, and, and the impression that her father made on her as a young girl. So, you know, I... I the brothers in the different quadrants in Mississippi that are coming together and working together, uh, it just shows what can be done and what will be done in other states. But it was just, it was interesting uh, what they did uh, last Thursday. Great. So, so, so tune in this week. Uh, that's uh, Thursdays from 7 to 9. Uh, Mississippi on the move, the Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi, Brother Patrick Lumumba. Uh, Brother Rodney Lowe, Dove Sack, uh, Attorney uh, Advisor Kamal Kareem, they they got about four or five different hosts that are part of uh, Mississippi on the Move and a lot of others. Uh, Sister Crystal, a lot of others. So uh, tune in on Thursdays. On Fridays, time for Awakening is back from 8 until on Saturdays, uh, the Elders of Sankofa with Dr. Janine James' host. And then time for Awakening is back on Sundays from 7 until I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, 
Save the children. 